I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. As far as we can tell, everything they attribute to EITs they already had, from other sources, from foreign governments, from other methods. They claim they saved lives, but what they really did was make it impossible to prosecute a mass murderer like KSM, because if what we did to him ever came out in a court of law, the case is over. The guy planned 9-11, and instead of going to jail for the rest of his life, the CIA turned him into a recruiting tool for a war we're still fighting. Stop meeting with them. This is a remarkable document you've created, truly. It will provide an enduring history, whether it comes out or not. Whether it comes out or not. Those are the words of actress Annette Bening playing California Senator Dianne Feinstein in The Report, a new movie that tells the gripping story of a landmark Senate investigation that documented the enhanced interrogation techniques used by the CIA in the aftermath of 9-11, techniques that, when exposed, were widely seen as amounting to torture. The impassioned young man she's talking to in that scene, played by actor Adam Driver, is Daniel Jones, a Senate staffer who oversaw the years-long inquiry into the torture program, only to face ferocious pushback on multiple fronts, including from the CIA itself, led by its then-director, John Brennan, who didn't want the agency's dirty linen being aired to the world. But Jones forged ahead with his report, determined to show that when the United States commits grave abuses and even war crimes, there must be accountability and a reckoning. Amid a new controversy about President Trump's handling of a case of a Navy SEAL accused of war crimes, we'll look back at the abuses of CIA interrogators and the intense battle over the Senate report aimed at exposing them with Dan Jones himself on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. We now have on the line Daniel Jones himself, the star of the movie, as played by uh, Adam Driver. Uh, Daniel, welcome to Skullduggery. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Michael. You know, so much to talk about in this movie. But, you know, I got to just in terms of historical perspective, a little different. I was trying to remember another Hollywood movie that featured a congressional staffer as the main character. And the one that I could come up with was the quiz show, 1994, 
in which Rob Morrow plays Dick Goodwin, who was investigating the uh, scandalous uh, quiz show that, of the 1950s. I don't know if you've made that analogy, but you're in that tradition. Well, every two decades, there's a movie made, apparently, on a, on a congressional staffer. It seems, it seems appropriate. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's the, that's the whole thing. It's, you know, as, as congressional staffers, as you know, you know, we're supposed to be in the background and fade, fade, uh, fade away. And it's really members who make things happen. And the same is true with, with this investigation into the CIA's torture program, right? None of it would have been made. The investigation wouldn't have been started. We wouldn't have done it. And we wouldn't have been able to publicly release anything without senators. I mean, that's, this, is the, this is congressional oversight, right? And without Senator Feinstein and Senator McCain specifically. Well, nothing will happen unless uh, senators or members of Congress can take credit for making them happen. But I think as your... <laughs> As this movie shows, it's actually the staffers who do the scud work. Uh, let's just walk through this story for those of our listeners who didn't live and breathe it the way Clydeman and I did, and obviously you did uh, even more. You were, uh, before you joined the Senate, you worked for the FBI briefly, uh, I was reminded by watching the movie, correct? Yes, I spent about four years at the Bureau doing uh, international terrorism cases, mostly al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda links uh, and al-Qaeda plotting around the world. And is it true, uh, Daniel, that one of your early job interviews was with Dennis McDonough, Obama's chief of staff, who later becomes one of your antagonists in uh, in trying to keep this report under wraps? Yeah, that scene in the film where there's a, a young Daniel Jones, again, played by Adam Driver, goes into Senator Daschle's office and meets with Dennis McDonough about, hey, I'm getting out of grad school. I'm looking for a job on the Hill. Can you give me some advice? Actually happened. I actually knew Pete Rouse. You may remember Pete Rouse, who was Daschle's chief of staff and then President Obama's chief of staff, who is often referred to as the 101st senator. Pete was just very gracious and guiding me during my last year in, in graduate school about what I wanted to do next. And it was Pete who connected me with Dennis. And Dennis, again, very graciously accepted a meeting, um, you know, with this nobody graduate student and gave me really good advice, which is, you know, there's a lot of people here in the Hill who have degrees. And there's not that many people who have degrees and experience um, working in the agencies. And, and Dennis suggested I go to the agency, CIA, go to the FBI, you know, go to DOD somewhere, spend a few years there and, and come back to the Hill. And again, again, I think it was really valuable advice. And I'm, I'm happy I was able to, to, to actually do that. So you go to the FBI and then you get hired by uh, Feinstein uh, to work on the Intelligence Committee. Uh, what year was that? So this is the end of 2006, early 2007. It was actually Jay Rockefeller from West Virginia who was chairing the Intelligence Committee at the time. And they brought me on basically to do investigations and to do oversight of counterterrorism because that's what I had spent my time doing both at the FBI and I worked out of the National Counterterrorism Center for a while um, with the agency. So they wanted me to do counterterrorism and, and some investigative work along the way. And it was, you know, less than a year when I was on the committee that it came to light that the CIA had destroyed these interrogation videotapes of their use of torture back in 2002. But by this time, of course, we knew a lot about the program, right? We knew about the existence of the black sites. We knew about some, if not all, of the uh, individual techniques. I think we knew about waterboarding, but uh, there was a lot that still obviously had not come out. Yeah, but you know that's a little bit of an unfair character characterization because while the Abu Ghraib photos came out and there were rumors of uh, waterboarding and, and really horrendous treatment, in fact, the, the CIA's own inspector general reported that CIA officers came to them and said that the CIA was engaged in war crimes. 
But whenever the CIA officers came to the Senate Intelligence Committee to brief, closed door, classified, they would say, you know, all of these are just rumors. And this is a very scientific program. And specifically in regards to the Abu Ghraib photos, John McLaughlin was testifying before the committee and said, what the CIA does is nothing like you see in these photos. And of course, it was far worse. So your original assignment was to figure out what was on those uh, destroyed tapes, right? It was, it was big news when we learned that upon orders of Jose Rodriguez, who was in charge of, the counter, of CIA counterterrorism, with the approval of Gina Haspel, uh, a name that uh-huh. will factor back into this story, the CIA destroyed all its video of its use of enhanced interrogation techniques. Yeah, and it's important, Mike, to know that that happened in 2000, November of 2005. And it happened one day after a failed Senate vote to do a deep dive into all detainee uh, matters related to the United States. That was both the Department of Defense and the CIA. This was a proposal by Senator Carl Levin from Michigan, who had read these, these accounts and wanted to do a deep dive. And the vote failed. And the day after the vote failed, the CIA destroyed these tapes because they worried that Congress would get access to them. And the important thing about the destruction of these tapes to know is when it happened in November 2005, again, you were right, Jose Rodriguez ordered these tapes. Gina Haspel wrote up the the cable, which is basically an internal memo, instructing a detention site or a, a CIA office overseas to destroy the tapes. That that was done knowing that the CIA's own leadership objected to the destruction of those tapes, knowing that the Bush White House had objected to the destruction of those tapes, and that the director of national intelligence had also come down on the position that the tapes should be retained. So this is the CIA's own leadership saying, don't destroy the tapes. And the cable that was sent from CIA headquarters to the CIA office overseas that held these tapes was, you know how emails are, right? So you have an email, then you have all these CCs. And anybody in a business world or a law firm knows you CC everybody on the planet. And that's how CIA internal memos are too. But what's unique about this destruction was that it was only sent to that office overseas and no lawyers were CC'd. No one else was CC'd on that cable. And it wasn't until a cable came back from the CIA office overseas that says the tapes have been destroyed. That office added everybody on the CC list. And that's when the CIA leadership and lawyers found out about it. And they were very upset because their orders were disobeyed. But instead of going to Congress and saying the tapes are destroyed, instead of going to the Bush White House and saying the tapes were destroyed, they hit it. Right. So it actually becomes public that the tapes have been destroyed, and that prompts a Justice Department investigation and a directive, tell me if I get this right, to you to figure out what happened and what was on those tapes. Exactly. Um, So in December of 2007, it comes to light, front page article, that the CIA had destroyed these interrogation videotapes. And immediately, the Bush White House, under McCasey, launches an, a criminal investigation into the destruction of tapes. At the same time, the commissioners of the 9-11 Commission do an op-ed in the New York Times accusing the CIA of obstruction of justice for not providing the tapes to the commission. And the committee, the Senate Intelligence Committee, decided that our job was to, was to uncover what would have been on those tapes had they been preserved. And that investigation investigation was actually, am I right that that investigation was conducted by John Durham, who uh, 
some of our listeners will have heard his name <laughs> from uh, his investigation into the origins of the Russia investigation. Uh, he investigated uh, the destruction of those tapes. He then went on to investigate whether crimes had been committed as a part of the, the whole program, but no one was ever prosecuted. That's exactly right. John Durham, uh, what, what is new, old is new again, right? So he comes in and he's put in charge of the tapes destruction investigation. Later on, Attorney General Holder expands that investigation to look at any CIA wrongdoing. It was anything done outside of the legal memos, right? So if you waterboarded someone, that was fine because it's in the, le- in the legal memos. But if you had conducted other course of activities towards detainees or broke the law in other ways, Holder wanted that examined. Now, throughout this process of the Durham investigation, it really impeded the Senate's work because typically, you know, it's not uncommon to have a DOJ criminal investigation at the same time have a congressional investigation. So what happens typically is that there's a deconfliction process and there's a discussion with the executive branch and the legislative branch. Typically, DOJ gets the first bite of the apple with a uh, interview. And then the Senate Intelligence Committee or the House Intelligence or whatever committee of jurisdiction can then interview the witness. Um, in this case, John Durham refused to take our phone calls. There was basically no opportunity for us to deconflict and get access to CIA officials. And because the DOJ refused to do that, because John Durham refused to engage with the Senate, the CIA refused to produce witnesses to, the, to our investigation. I, I thought that was fascinating. There are all these scenes in the movie of Adam Driver playing your character on the phone trying to get through to Durham, and Durham literally won't take his calls. Did Senator Feinstein try getting to Durham? I mean, he wouldn't talk to anyone? That's exactly right. They just would not engage. I mean, this is the same. We we saw this again, a little bit of a side, side road here. Under Obama, there's one of the very first footnotes in the declassified executive summary is about several letters that the chairman of the committee, Senator Feinstein, wrote to Obama saying that there were a number of documents withheld from the committee. If I recall, it was under 10,000, which sounds like a lot, but remember this was based on 6.3 million records. So it was a very small percentage. But nonetheless, we wanted to get access to those 10,000 documents the White House had withheld. And Feinstein repeatedly asked the, the Obama administration to either claim executive privilege and say you're not getting these documents, or to provide them one way or the other. And the Obama White House just simply ignored the the chairman. Yeah, I just want to say the original uh, brief to Durham to investigate the uh, destruction of the tapes was under the the Bush administration. In fact, I think it was uh, Mukasey was the attorney general at the time. And then the more expanded investigation into the techniques themselves and whether there were officers, CIA officers who violated the law, that was a directive from Eric Holder, who was Obama's uh, first attorney general. So when you say that Durham refused to cooperate, wouldn't that have been a call that was would have been ultimately made by Holder rather than Durham himself? Well, listen, this was Durham refused to speak with the committee both under Mukasey as well as under right. Holder. Now, whether that was the decision that went all the way up to the attorney general, I, I simply don't know. I do know that there are repeated efforts to contact Durham on this and deconflict without success. Okay, let's continue yeah. with the story. So you don't get access to any of the CIA officers who were involved in the program, but you did get access to millions of, of documents, cables and memoranda and so forth. And you get set up in a secure room 
uh, in some covert facility that, uh, you know, under the control of the CIA. Tell us about that. That factors later factors into the story into in some very interesting ways in terms of spying that, that goes on. So tell us that story. Sure. The CIA took the position that what the committee was requesting, which is access to all documents related to the CIA's detention interrogation program, was an unprecedented request. And that in order to get documents provided to the committee, these are operational documents, source information and methods that are discussed in great detail, that they would not provide those documents in the committee spaces, notwithstanding the fact that the committee space is a, has all the same uh, intelligence requirements that the CIA spaces do, right? These are SCIF, Secure Compartment and Information Facilities. And they said that if you want to do this, if you want to get access to these documents unrestricted, you have to do it in our spaces. And this was a, a long negotiation that went back and forth. And eventually the, the senators on the committee agreed to this. And I will say it was over the objections of staff who thought that this was a bad precedent. All previous investigations had always been conducted in the Senate's uh, own spaces and that this was a, a new and novel procedure. And we thought sort of for precedent reasons that it was ill-advised, but for expediency, the senators chose to, to comply with the CIA's request. Why don't you uh, just... Walk us through what these enhanced interrogation techniques were and what you discovered in the course of pouring over these uh, this mountain of cables and uh, internal emails, how they were used and how it was reported up the chain. Just walk us through the basics of what the CIA was doing with these detainees. Right. So the, the techniques were based off a, a military program that exposes our special forces to torture tactics that they might be exposed to if they are captured by an enemy state that doesn't believe in Geneva Conventions, and that is very much interested in getting U.S. service members to talk for propaganda purposes, right? This is the SEER program. And the two psychologists who largely created this program at the agency, Mitchell and Jessen, who are depicted in the film, came up with these techniques that the CIA would use that were also used in the SEER program. And this involved walling, which is slamming a person up against a wall, uh, extensive sleep deprivation, for standing, cramped confinement. There were two confinement boxes. One, the large box, the size of a coffin, essentially. The smaller box, the size of uh, basically a beer keg. The slaps, you know, these were all sort of what was on the written deck of things the CIA was able to do. And they told the Department of Justice that these techniques would not be used in repetition and that they would be used in an order of least coercive to, to most coercive. And of course, all of that was wrong. Even beginning the first detainee, uh, Abu Zubeda, uh, this is a detainee captured in 2002. He was interrogated by the FBI initially. Then he spent 47 days in isolation without any questioning until the CIA was able to get the Department of Justice to approve these techniques that I was speaking about. And then within the very first six hours of that interrogation, and, and he was subjected to these so-called enhanced interrogation techniques. You know, for more than 20 days, and he spent 17 days in, in, in a coffin-shaped box alone. Well, this is Abu Zubaydah, well, right? Abu Zubaydah. This is Abu yeah. Zubaydah. And doesn't right. it just, but I'm sorry, six, to, doesn't it begin yeah, there yeah. because Abu Zubaydah, they think, has all this important information about possible future attacks, and he's not talking? That's right. This was another error by the CIA analysts, basically. They had assessed 
that Abu Zubaydah was number three or four in Al-Qaeda and that he would have access to Osama bin Laden's attack plotting against the United States and he would know who the Al-Qaeda operatives were inside continental United States. So they were convinced that Abu Zubaydah had that information. And in July of 2002, while the CIA is making these representations about who Abu Zubaydah was to the Department of Justice, there was a memo that came back and given to all the CIA lawyers that said, we had one source saying that Abu Zubaydah was third or fourth in Al-Qaeda. And that source has retracted that statement. So it's July, a month before they begin using EITs. And now the CIA lawyers and the CIA analysts know that he's definitely probably not three or four in Al-Qaeda because it was single source, right? Uh, and that was retracting. But they still think that he's close to bin Laden. And one of those things is it's based off signals intelligence. This is in the report itself. If you looked at signals intelligence, Abu Zubaydah looked like he was the center of the universe because he was getting all these phone calls. And it turns out he was getting all those phone calls, not because he was this big operational planner. It was because he was the person who got people into training camps, right? So if you want to go train either an Al-Qaeda training camp or an affiliated training camp somewhere, you would call Abu Zubaydah. He's basically the staff secretary. Uh, but if you look at all the phone numbers, it looks like he's, he's the center of all the action. It's as if you looked at, I don't know, United Airlines, and you wanted to find out who the most important person was there, and you looked at all the phones, and it turns out it's the operator, right? And that's, that's, their, that's their assessment, that the CEO is actually the person taking all the calls. So it turns out Abu Zubaydah was not who they thought he was, and he never knew who the operatives were in the United States, uh, and he didn't know anything about the next attack. So in a sense, this program is rooted in a intelligence error. Well, in, the, in regards to the assessment of Abu Zubaydah, absolutely. But the larger error of this whole program is this fallacy that the use of torture will produce accurate information, which the CIA themselves over a number of years had concluded that torture produces false answers and is unreliable. Those are the CIA's words. So, Daniel, one thing that um, I, I was interested in, and in the movie, there's a line that says that uh, George, and, and I guess this was in your report, that George W. Bush was not briefed on these techniques when they were first approved. And in fact, it took a long time before he was ever briefed on them. Now, I, you know, I remember writing you know, scenes where Gonzalez and uh, people from the Justice Department and other agencies were in the White House Counsel's office where they were actually, you know, demonstrating uh, some of these techniques, I mean, mock demonstrating them. You know, this was going on, you know, right down the hall from the Oval Office. I also think I remember that uh, George W. Bush wrote in his memoir, Decision Points, that he was briefed by George Tenet, the CIA director at the time. Is there still ambiguity about what George Bush knew and, and when he knew it? Or is that something that you've definitively um, resolved um, in, in, in the report? You know, I think this is, this is largely definitively resolved. I mean, the CIA did their own internal study on when Bush was briefed. When one of the acting general counsels wrote a book, about his experience in the CIA. John Rizzo. He yeah. noted that this is John Rizzo, right? John Rizzo identified George Bush as a stand-up guy. This tells you a lot about the agency, by the way, because he lied about what he knew about the program to protect the agency. George Tenet, who is the CIA director, has said on the record he never briefed President Bush 
Uh, Mike Morrell, who eventually became the acting director, was President Bush's uh, briefer, was not briefed into the CIA's detention interrogation program during that time. When the CIA went back and did a study, they found he was briefed in April of 2006 and that he basically said he was uncomfortable with the detainee chained to the ceiling, going to the bathroom on themselves. Um, when there was a question and answer for press prepared in September of 2006, when the President Bush actually came out and spoke about the program publicly, there was a, a background briefer for press. And one of the questions they anticipated getting from members of the media was, what did President Bush know and when did he know it? And the proposed response for the principals at the White House was, the president leaves operational decisions to the CIA. He does not get in the weeds or micromanage, something to that regard. And of course, we know through CIA's own internal records that when Condoleezza Rice wanted to brief the president on the CIA's program, she was told there will be no briefing of the president. She was told by whom? Well, that was always a mystery in, in the CIA records. Um, there's only so many people in the White House when you're national security advisor uh, who can tell you that there'll be no briefing of the president. It was never said definitively in CIA's records, but again, we know that George Tenet, the CIA director at the time, did not brief the president. We know that Porter Goss, the next CIA director, did not brief President Bush on the program. Um, they have said this on the record, and they have said on the record that it was their understanding the president was never briefed. We did see prepared documents by the CIA, and these were proposed briefing data, uh, data points for President Bush. And we had many draft documents, and they started initially by describing all of the techniques, including waterboarding. And then the next draft would describe maybe four of the techniques, but leave out waterboarding and say, you know, walling, cramped confinement, and other, you know, tough techniques. And then eventually it said, we're going to be using tough techniques that law enforcement wouldn't use, but they're fully legal. And then finally, there's a decision made. Scrap all of them. We're not briefing the president. So we've been talking about the Bush administration, but, you know, uh, much of this movie depicts an Obama administration that was very opposed to uh, releasing this report, including the Obama White House and, of course, the Obama's CIA director, uh, John Brennan, who in some ways is if there's if there's a villain in this movie, in some ways it's John Brennan. So I want to ask you about that. What was the real root of Obama's resistance to releasing the report? And then on Brennan, was he covering it up to protect the CIA or was he acting at all in good faith because he was worried about the safety of CIA officers? Well, let me take the Obama administration uh, question first. It remains a great mystery to me how they responded to this. It seems like they had so many options that on their table and they chose all the wrong ones. They never took a briefing by the staffers of the Senate. Um, they never set up their own sort of red team cell, which was my recommendation to them, which is, you know, don't believe me and the staff and the senators. Set up your own team and go through these documents. Spend a week or two stress testing the Senate report and make your own assessment. They refused to do that. And they were just a massive impediment to, to getting this made public all along the way. And it remains a mystery to me, and I, I would love to hear what was behind their decision-making. I suspect it was really deference to the CIA at the time. Remember, there was this August 2014 speech by President Obama 
And that speech happened on the day that he thought the Senate report was going to be released. And he said, we tortured some folks. And a lot of people remember that line, largely because they thought it, it was too folksy for, for the content at hand. But what a lot of people don't remember is what he said next. And he said, it's important we don't get too sanctimonious about what these people did because they're real patriots. And to me, immediately it felt like a gut punch, not only to the Senate, who was doing its job, but more importantly, to all the CI officers who came forward, who said they didn't want to be a part of this program, all the CI officers who went to the inspector general and said the CI is engaged in war crimes. You know, those are the patriots, the people who went through the proper channels to report this up and objected. And yet President Obama is saying the people who did waterboarding, who misled the Department of Justice, who misled both the, White, the Bush White House and the Obama White House about the effectiveness of this program, he's calling them real patriots. And it's that lack of accountability, it's that lack of interest in truth that still shakes me today. And what about Brennan? Well, Brennan, in regards to Brennan, the agency, you know, this is, this is my own opinion. There's no document anywhere that describes this. But I do believe senior leadership at the agency views their patriotism with the lens of, of the Central Intelligence Agency in mind. In other words, what is good for the CIA is good for the United States of America. And what is bad for the CIA is bad for the United States of America. And they viewed this report as a threat to their own credibility. Pavitt, who was a deputy director of the CIA at one point, said that one of his greatest fears of the agency was that this report would become public, right? George Tenet said, if this were to come out, people would think we're torturers. They viewed this program as an existential threat to the very existence of the CIA. So walk us through the what is really the sort of dramatic high point of the movie and also, uh, I guess, your life. When the CIA bursts into the uh, room you had where you were doing all your work and essentially absconds with your contact. Uh, this was uh, viewed as the CIA spying on the Senate. There was talk of a constitutional crisis over this. And I, I just want to hear from you how you experienced that and tell the listeners exactly what happened. Sure. Well, let's, let's take this note about the CIA officers going into the room. We know for sure that the CIA went into the Senate computers, searched our documents, they went into the staff's email and searched our emails. We know that. There was recently an article in the New York Times in which Brennan's spokesperson, which is a bizarre, but the, the, the New York Times says that Brennan's spokesperson said the CIA never entered the room. Now, the CIA refused to comment, and there was a correction in that article. It first attributed that statement to John Brennan, and John Brennan retracted it <laughs> and refused to say on the record that the CIA never went into that room. It is the Senate's belief that the CIA officers um, went into that door and searched our papers. Why do we say that? Because the Senate, and this is bipartisan, both the chairman and the vice chairman repeatedly asked John Brennan if CIA officers had gone into that room. They repeatedly sent written letters just with that question, and the CIA refused to answer. And it was our understanding that the inspector general believed that CIA officers entered that room, notwithstanding this latest spokesperson for Brennan saying otherwise. But why for what the purpose? Did what that? did they want? What were they looking for when they hacked right. into your computers? So there was a confirmation hearing for the CIA's uh, general counsel, Carolyn Kraft. And this was occurring during a period of time 
that the CIA was leaking information to the press saying that the Senate's report contained multiple inaccuracies, right? Significant errors. And that they were saying that the report wouldn't be released because it was wrong, essentially. Um, they were attacking the report with the press. And Carolyn Kraft comes up for a confirmation hearing. And as part of her confirmation process, she is asked to read portions of the Senate report. And Mark Udall, who is a, a senator from Colorado, a really fantastic senator, asked Carolyn Kraft about an internal review the CIA had conducted. Now, the CIA is telling the, the Obama White House, they're telling the senators and the committee, and they're leaking to the press that the Senate study is all wrong. It's not accurate. And what Mark Udall reveals at this hearing is that while the CIA is externally telling the president and everyone else that they never did these things the Senate has uncovered, there's an internal CIA report, which is called the Panetta Review. This was a secret internal review that Leon Panetta had asked to be conducted. And that internal review largely matched up with the Senate's findings. In other words, the, the CIA itself had done an internal secret review and found the same things the Senate had, yet publicly it was denying all these facts. And when it came to light publicly that the Senate had obtained a version of this internal study, this, Leon, this Panetta review, it basically went ballistic. And that caused the CIA to search the computers, go into the staff's email, and what we believe also enter the room. So how did the Senate obtain the Panetta review? Well, from the beginning of the Senate's review until the end of the, the research phase, the CIA produced 6.3 million pages of classified records. Put that in perspective, that's the equivalent of about two urban libraries. Um, my Occam's razor view of this is that, well, the simplest explanation is, it is a review of the CIA's Central Intelligence Committee program. The Senate is doing an investigation of that program. I can think of nothing more relevant, right, for the Senate to obtain than a, an internal review the CIA had conducted on its own program. So the number one reason is because the Senate should have had it, right? Why would the Senate not get an internal review the CIA conducted? It's getting 6.3 million pages of material on that program. Of course it should get an internal review conducted by Leon Panetta. It's ridiculous to suggest otherwise. But I, I just want to try to understand this because did the you make a compelling case for why the Senate should have gotten the Panetta review, yeah. but the CIA didn't want the Senate to have it. So how did the Senate, yeah. Senate end right. up getting it? Right. Number one, the Senate should have gotten it. But if the CIA was holding it back, which they shouldn't have done, if they were holding it back, how do we get it? Well, one explanation is it was, sim it was simply a mistake, right? You're producing 6.3 million pages of records. Any lawyer that has done a big document review knows um, that you're going to get some errors in there, right? Maybe somebody at CIA said, make sure they don't get the Panetta review. But some low-level employee is going through documents and is like, this mentions waterboarding, put it in their system, right? That's, that's one explanation. The other explanation is, and this was the one that always worried me the most, and it's why we never overtly talked about the Panetta Review, was that it was a whistleblower inside the CIA. In other words, John Brennan and others say, make sure the Senate never sees this Panetta Review. And someone went out on a limb at the CIA and said, I want to do the right thing. Um, I'm going to put this in their system. Um, Is that what happened? Because we thought, I don't know. I don't know, Mike. Um, I actually tend to believe that 
it could be much more mundane, which is it's 6.3 million pages of records. Some employees saw that this mentioned waterboarding and all the, everything else. It's a, it's a more than a thousand page document all about the CIA's detention interrogation program. Of course, put it in their system. Uh, that is what I think is probably the most likely explanation. When did you learn about it? I mean, did you have an aha moment where you're on the computer well, and all yeah. of a sudden you see this thing or? Yeah. No, we, we realized the significance of that document right away, largely because, you know, we were, we did this case investigation. Alyssa Starzak, who was a former CIA lawyer and I, you know, did this deep dive into what was, would have been on the tapes for Abu Zubaydah and Abnal Rashim al-Nashiri. Um, and, and we found that the program was far more brutal than the CIA had stated, that it was largely ineffective, that CIA officers themselves thought it was ineffective. And of course, this launched the larger review. And when we were doing the larger review, we kept finding shocking and absolutely surprising information that was totally contrary to what the CIA had told, had told Congress. And at a certain point, you begin to question yourself. I mean, the program was that bad and that contrary to what the Senate was told. And to get this internal review that was conducted by CIA officers themselves, which was an affirmation of the work and, and the information that you were already uncovering, it was a relief, frankly. So when I came across, when the team came across the Panetta Review, my personal reaction was a relief. Like, oh, good. We're, you know, we're not crazy. We're finding the same crazy stuff that we're finding, these CIA officers are finding. So it seems to me that there are sort of several uh, legacies today from this story, which I'd like to get you to talk about a little bit. One is that, you know, you make the point in the movie or, you know, Scott Burns, the director, and uh, makes the point in the movie through your words and those of others that the kind of conduct that the CIA was engaged in, this kind of brutal, essentially lawless torture of uh, detainees has consequences. It would have consequences for U.S. soldiers who get captured by hostile forces and they take out their Geneva Convention card saying they expect to be treated according to uh, the rules of the Geneva Convention and it would just get torn up by uh, enemies saying, look, we know what your government did, which was in violation of uh, Geneva Convention standards. And it seems to me that's a very relevant issue right now uh, while people are debating President Trump's pardon of accused war criminals and, um, you know, or directive that uh, Navy SEAL Gallagher, for instance, retain his Trident pin uh, over the objections of uh, senior naval officials. And I just, in terms of why this should be, we should pay attention to what happened here today. Uh, I wonder if you can speak to that in the context of the debate we're having now about pardons for war criminals. I mean, I think, personally speaking, I think we're in an accountability crisis in, in, in our country right now. And this has been going on for decades. If we just look at the CIA as, as, a, as an example, post 9-11, there was a massive intelligence failure that led to the attacks on September 11th. That was never fully examined in a way that it, it needed to be. You know, George Tenet went to President Bush afterwards and said, this is not the time to look backward and cast blame, it's time to look forward. And the tough decision, right, to make is to be aggressive going forward. So there was no accountability for that. There was no accountability when a CIA detainee died at the hands of a CIA officer because of his treatment. 
And then we go to these tapes. You know, we talked about Gina Haspel. I don't know Gina Haspel. I have colleagues who think very highly of her. But I will say that I think it's a massive problem when the Department of Justice launches a criminal review into the destructions of, ta- of, of the interrogation videotapes. Again, these are tapes of the CIA of engaging in torture of detainees. And the Department of Justice decides not to make a criminal charge against the CIA or CIA officers involved. But what's important is they did go to the CIA and they said, you should hold two people accountable. There are two people most culpable for the destruction of these tapes. And remember, the destruction of these tapes occurred over the objections of the CIA's own leadership. These are more junior level people saying, I know what's best for the CIA, not the CIA director, not the CIA uh, general counsel. I know what's best. And I'm going to destroy these tapes. And the Department of Justice at the end of its review says you should hold two people accountable. Jose Rodriguez, who was in charge of the counterterrorism division, and his chief of staff, Gina Haspel. And of course, what happens is Mike Morrell, Mike Morrell was an acting director of the CIA. He wrote a book about uh, his service at the agency and boasts about this in his book that the director at the time told Mike Morrell to set up an accountability board review based off the Department of Justice's recommendation. Um, But he didn't do that. Mike Morrell didn't do that. He decided to do this on his own. And he took Jose Rodriguez out for a beer to discuss what was going to happen, right? Rodriguez gets a letter in his file, continues to work the agency, writes a book about how great the torture program was. And Gina Haskell gets completely absolved of any responsibility, notwithstanding the Department of Justice's request that she be held accountable. And then she rises through the ranks to become CIA director. Now, tell me if a junior officer at the CIA today disobeys the order of Gina Haspel. What sort of authority does she have to say that was inappropriate and you should be held accountable? And we're seeing the same thing with the Gallagher case. You ha- in, in government agencies like this, you must have a chain of a command. You must have a sense of responsibility and you must hold people accountable. And again and again and again in our national security apparatus, we see a reticence to hold people accountable because their jobs are tough. And I will tell you, going through 6.3 million pages of record, there are incredibly talented, honorable people who follow the rules of the agency. And every time you don't hold someone accountable, you're punishing those people. You're telling them that they don't need to follow the rules, even though they are following the rules. And it, it just, it's a breakdown. I mean, we are a law-abiding society with rules, and we need to honor that in all factors of our national security apparatus. One of the reasons that the uh, Obama administration insisted on uh, redacting uh, large sections of the report and using pseudonyms, and then I guess they redacted the pseudonyms of some of these uh, officers who were engaging in these uh, in these torture techniques, is that they would be exposed, they would be, you know, potentially hunted down and killed by by the terrorists. And the character played by Adam Driver keeps saying, well, wait a second, these guys did these things and we're going to protect them? And the, I guess the question for you is, they were following Justice Department guidance. They were being instructed that what they were doing was lawful. And they were, to use a phrase, following orders. Does that absolve them in any way at all? Or should they have been exposed, prosecuted, held accountable in ways that they've never been held accountable? Well, first and foremost, you would never find me advocating for the inclusion of the name, the real names of CIA officers in any public document. 
it's not my decision to make as a staffer that senator for senators, but you would never find me advocating for that. I do believe that we owe you know a debt to people who serve um, and to ensure their safety. This was never about the safety of CI officers. That was something the agency threw out. Remember, we use pseudonyms, we fake names, not their fake. You know, there are CIA true names. There are people that use fake names in the CIA, right? We didn't use their fake names in the agency. We created our own fake pseudonyms for the report itself. So you could follow someone's inclusion through the report. And it was those fake, fake names that the CIA fought to redact and take out, not for safety reasons, but then you could actually see the thread. You could get the narrative of how the same people pop up again and again and again, the same people who engage in wrongdoing, who are never held accountable as they rise to the top. That's what the CIA was trying to bury. This was never about safety of CIA officers. You know, one uh, final point uh, when you speak about accountability, uh, and we played the clip in the introduction here uh, from the movie where you talk about what the consequences are of this program are going to be for trying to hold the people who did 9-11 accountable. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed waterboarded, what was it, 183 times. Uh, and you made the point back then that as a result, we'll never be able to put people like him on trial. And I got to say, here we are, how many years after 9-11 and uh, in this military tribunal system and no trial of the perpetrators of 9-11 is currently in sight and largely because of this program that you helped expose? I mean, that's right. They're, they're, the consequences of this program are so multi-layered. Um, one, I would say it it failed to produce the intelligence that we needed. Um, we know what interrogation techniques work, and, and we lost an opportunity to obtain real solid intelligence on al-Qaeda because we used torture. That's number one. Um, two, justice. You know, the, the families who experienced loss because of the attack on September 11th still do not have justice for what occurred. And that's because of torture. That's because the CIA's use of torture, which failed to produce the information that they said. And that's a massive travesty. You know, and the third part would be our standing in the world and, our, and our, our, our ability to hold other countries accountable for their actions. You know, we think of the Khashoggi killing, and then we have Gina Haskell travel to Saudi Arabia. What sort of moral authority do we hold when we uh, engage in this type of behavior and try to hide it and cover it up uh, and then call out other countries for their actions and, you know, in, in hopefully a more just world? You know, Senator McCain who, by the way, this report would not have been, in my, it's my belief, it would not have been um, conducted and released without Senator McCain. You know, he, he talked about the only way to reclaim our moral authority was to document the truth of this program, to expose it ourselves, and to re recommit ourselves to our values and, and what's truly effective. And I think that's really the story of this report. And Scott uh, Burns, the writer and director of the film, I think has done a really great job. In, in pulling all this together in a way that's um, accessible to more Americans. I mean, I don't know how many people read, you know, the full report is 6,700 pages, you know, uh, 38,000 <laughs> footnotes, you know, the declassified versions about 525 pages, 2,725 footnotes. It's pretty dry. Uh, I still think it's a compelling read, but I don't know how many people read that report. And I think because there was CI officers out on television afterwards, continuing to say it was wrong because there was no presidential leadership 
from the Obama administration acknowledging this program. They let John Brennan go out uh, and give a, a town hall, largely you know, changing the goalposts with this and, and defending the agency. Um, I think there's a real chance that those the, the lessons wouldn't have been learned from this report. But I think thanks to Scott and the filmmakers, that will go a long way. You know, that will reach many more people than our, our Senate report did. And I'm just really proud that he was able to do this. Dan, he couldn't have done the movie uh, if it hadn't been for your uh, work. So I want to thank you for um, sharing your insights into what is truly a uh, fascinating movie and a fascinating story. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. One last thing. It, it is really key to know that this was a project done by senators with you know other staff and you know it and it, it involved multiple moving pieces um and to get it done and i'm very proud that we did get it done and you know thanks for having me today ever the staffer <laughs> <laughs> you were trained well in your years on the hill i <laughs> thanks uh, dan i think that might be that might be authentic humility on on dan's part <laughs> okay thanks for joining well, thanks us thanks for having me guys all right oh my pleasure my pleasure Thanks to former U.S. Senate investigator Daniel Jones for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. We'll talk to you soon.